This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and here I am with my most unified co-host, Jon. I was afraid you were going to call, call, you were going to call me monolithic, but uh, at least it didn't go that far. <sighs> well, we are wrapping up our, our two-parter on uh, unikernels with Ian Iberg, and uh, unless there's anything else you'd like to mention before we get into it. No, as our listeners have been aware now, it's been long a long interview, so let's not waste too much time before we move into the nitty-gritty. All right. Over to Ian. If, if let's say, someone decides that uh, the, the unicorn concept is, is interesting and, and sort of think it's worth exploring, like, how how do you go about like building these things is it is it the similar sort of cicd pipeline that that people would be more familiar with for their like container builds or like what what's the sort of tooling and and process required to to start start on this journey yeah um so there's there's basically two different um concepts one is just building the image and then one is getting them to you know your deployment uh you know, cloud of choice. Uh, building the image, you know, if, if you're using our tool set, we just use ops. And so, uh, depending on what you're working on, so if you're using Go, you can literally do, say, like, ops run my Go binary, and it'll immediately spin up that uh, Go binary inside of a VM running QMU locally. It will have built an image on demand, and, and you can run that. Um, that's probably the most simplest um example you could you could do right there it gets more complicated you know you can add whatever the hell you want to the disk image so typically people have configuration files typically people have static assets you know there, there's lots of other stuff you can run now if you're using something like ruby or node.js or something like that um you know most people aren't used to compiling those themselves they want like ready to uh, use package. And so Ops has this concept of packages where we have, you know, ready to use software and you can do something like Ops package load, node version, whatever, um, and then point it at a JavaScript file. And that that will go ahead and build a disk image and execute it on demand. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you can stick that in a CI, CD environment. Um, you know, if you have your test pass, and then it kicks off a new build, and then deploys it. Um, you know that that works more or less the same. Um, yeah. Okay. So. So if... it's I, I I guess to answer your question, um, what we're trying to do with ops is to make it. You know, um, there should there should be node of very little uh, sort of. Um, steps that the end user needs to take to run their existing applications as unicrowls. If, if, if they are, then, you know, that's on us and we need to make it, make it better. So. Okay. So, so far there seem to be very, very little downsides, lots of upsides. Like what, what am I missing? Like what are the downsides if there are any of, of unikernels? Of, yeah. A unikernel I mean, approach, I guess. Yeah. I'll tell you. Um, so architecture-wise, um, a lot of organizations might not be in a position to move to this or architecture immediately. A, um, it's it's not something that, you know, I keep on discussing the differences between languages that have threads and those that don't. 
Um, and a lot of people don't get why that's important. Um, it's uh, so if we look at Ruby, Python, Node.js, all the scripting languages basically, um, they're inherently single processing, single threaded. Okay, well, what does that mean? It, what it means is that your deployment mechanisms that you're using today are inherently pretty different from how they would work in Unicurl land. If, if I have a Rails application, um, generally speaking, I might have called about five or six, you know, uh, Rails app servers behind maybe an Nginx load balancer or something like that. Okay, that's, that's a very, very different deployment mechanism than how it would work in Unicurl land. Because in Unicurl land, each of those Rails apps becomes a new VM. And so a lot of organizations aren't used to that way of working. And so when they're like, well, how does that work? You know, because I have this front end proxy and it talks to these other app servers and, and all this might exist on one server too. Um, where in Unicron land, again, each of those app servers becomes an individual uh, virtual machine. So like I said, Go, Rust, Java, that can be a very different deployment mechanism than some, some of the scripting languages could be. However, you know, maybe you, you are used to it, you know, like say you're using Node.js and you might be using one of these like Zeek or something like that, where they already kind of do that deployment for you, then, um, then it could be natural. It, it, it really depends on the organization and how they're doing things today. So. Okay, quick question in between, because uh, you keep saying uh, unikernel VMs. Now, VMs typically run on a hypervisor. I'm assuming this yep. doesn't run on VMware. This has, what, what is running those unikernels? Yeah, uh, so good question. So, so um, Nanos always deploys as a virtual machine. Like always, 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 we have absolutely no bare metal support and, and we don't plan on putting any in. Um, it would break our architecture quite a lot. Um, yeah. So uh, answer to the other question, it does run on VS, uh, vSphere. Okay. Uh, vSphere ESX677 um, runs on Workstation, runs on Fusion. Uh, it, pretty much any popular hypervisor out there, we've already addressed. So Azure with Hyper-V, um, you know, Zen, Citrix, uh, KVM obviously is, is probably the best support we have. <laughs> That's just, you know, uh, so, uh, so yeah, all the major clouds, even like Oracle cloud and, you know, uh, some of the, some of the other, you know, uh, systems out there like digital ocean and, and things like that, those have full support. So. Um, so yeah, it, it, in terms of orchestration, uh, again, when they boot up, it is a virtual machine that boots up. So, um, it's, it's literally booting that virtual machine and, you know, we, we have the bootloader and then, uh, one way to think about it is, is if, you know, in, in Linux, we have this init system and kicks off like half a dozen different daemons and so forth. This is like booting straight into the app rather than, than the init system. And so that application has kind of full control over over the resources um yes you have you have the kernel to to deal with you know paging and all the other kernel like stuff that needs to happen but um the uh the application basically has full control so yeah, earlier you said that uh, the unicorn vm had direct access to the hardware but i'm assuming you're going through the power virtuals power virtual drivers that right with the hypervisor right. stuff yeah okay. yeah so de depending on the configuration that statement can be more true <laughs> then, then, then you know because we have things like pci pass through nowadays mm -hmm. um in fact amazon's nitro system you know can talk to mvme and um some uh, uh network offloading uh custom silicon that they've done 
And so in that case, it's, it's even more true. Um, what I meant by that statement saying talking directly to the hardware is um, compared to something like, like a Kubernetes where you, assuming you're on public cloud, you have the virtual machine, and then you have that layer on top. And so um, that's, that's where that actually incurs a performance tax. Um, uh, you know, and, and unless you're using something like a DPDK or something like that, um, it, it's, it, it's noticeable, even just comparing to like a normal Debian or, uh, you want to or whatever. I got a silly question. I mean, one of the, 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 the rallying cries for, for containerization uh, above everything is the fact that in the container, you don't have a kernel, you share the kernel from the OS. Now, by having the virtual machine layer, the hypervisor in between, I don't think there's a way of doing that with unikernels. And something in me says, if you're going to optimize stuff, okay, you said size doesn't matter. Size always matters. <laughs> Get being able to have multiple of these unikernel things running on a single kernel and just having the application mm -hmm. layer. Is that a step too far? Is that been attempted? Is this just a stupid suggestion of mine, which would not be my first? Yeah, I I wouldn't call it stupid. Um, just uh, we we do definitely take the very exact opposite approach, and, and we do that mainly for a security reason. Um, if if you look at container securities, like kind of number one weakness, in my opinion, is the fact that they do share the kernel, um, and that's 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 actually extremely dangerous. Um, you know, Azure, in particular. Has suffered from this, from more more so than other cloud providers have. Um, but you know, whenever you have access to one container in something like Kubernetes, you immediately have access to the entire freaking infrastructure. And it doesn't matter how many servers that infrastructure spawns. If you have like 100 servers on this cluster, everything's exposed now. That breaks well-known security boundaries that typical virtual machines. Um, actually have, you know, some people might not know this, but there's actually like actual real hardware silicon that is enacting security boundaries on, on VMs. And we don't have that equivalent in container land. Um, container land, if, if I have one container compromised in your Kubernetes infrastructure, you should consider the entire thing completely compromised. And that's, that's dangerous. Um, so it's, uh, I, uh, yeah, that's 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 where that shared kernel thing kind of kind of comes to play. Um, yes, you know, in answer to your question, there there might be a perceived um, more heavyweightness, but it, you know, frankly, I don't. Every time I see somebody advertise, they're like, "Oh, I got a container that's like one meg or hundred k or something." I'm like, "Is this something you're running in production, or it, you know, because?" It, most of the applications I look at are heavyweight to begin with, uh, and and it can get really heavyweight depending on language. If it's if it's JVM, you know, it could be gigs. If it's Python, uh, some of the machine learning Python frameworks out there are huge. Um, you know, if it's a simple Go and REST web server, even those you're looking at ten megs, twenty megs at least, and that's before you cut you know throw in all your static assets and things of that nature. So. Um, yeah, the, 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 the size, um, I don't know, they, only when you're maybe shipping these across the ocean would uh, those sizes come into play. So I've, I've had to ship stuff uh, across the Great Firewall over in China before, <laughs> and man, the latency there, yeah, that, that definitely affects your image size. So. Yeah, I got one more question that's going to go off script a bit, Dave. Sorry for that. 
Um, <laughs> sure. Because while we're talking here, I'm thinking, okay, well, let's say I have a, not an application, but an architecture of things interconnecting. Because I never deploy just a database. If I deploy a database, I'll have yeah. an application that uses that database. And yeah. I'll have dozens, if not hundreds of little glue scripts in between that do little finicky things. Now, these kind of these glue scripts are what I'm trying to talk about. Because I mean, the reason that most Linux kernels or Linux systems come with Bash, Dash, uh, C shell, K shell, whatever, is because all the yeah. other glue scripts have different shells they require, stuff like that. How do you solve that? problem, if you can call it a problem in the unikernel world, how do you, where does that stuff reside? Yeah, so there's a, there's kind of two parts to this. The, the first part is that, again, um, a lot of these like shell scripts and, you know, execute this, you know, whenever you provision a new system, things of like that nature, a lot of that you have to think about uh, beforehand before you deploy. So if you know that your application needs that, you need to add that functionality um, before you deploy. Um, and that's not to say that you can just add a shell script because we don't, we don't support that, right? So um, what you have to do is either code it into your application or you have to use, um, you know, like a plugin of sorts. And so in Nanos, we have this, this um, idea of like a, what's called, what we call a KLID. And it's basically common functionality that you would want lots of different um, VMs that may be written in different languages uh, to consume. And so one example would be syslog, right? So uh, somebody wants a common syslog uh, functionality, but they don't want to have to put that into their code because that's an ops functionality and they don't want the developers messing with it. Uh, you find this in the security world too. Uh, security team might have control over rotating PLS certs every few hours. Um, and that's completely divorced from the deployment workflow. And so in that instance, what they might do is they might they might stick it on a separate partition and mount it as an external volume that sits there and remounts every two or three hours. Um, so there's there's ways of working around this. It might be might be different than what people are used to. Um, and so that's where that so that friction might come into place. It's like oh, I got to do it this way versus that way. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you can, you can still achieve pretty much everything you would want to achieve. Yeah. But it sounds like it's more like a configuration thing than that you add to the, the unikernel to make it behave differently, which you have to have, have in mind before you actually build the thing to be able to use that configuration thing. It, yeah. It, it, it depends on the type of configuration. Yeah. Um, you, you know, like I said, you can, you can put whatever you want into the disk. So if it's if it's actual like actual config files, you know you could check into a secret server same way you do, or you could add it as YAML, you know, JSON, whatever. Um, it, and then there's all the other tweaking that you, you might have where where you might have to think about that ahead of, ahead of time. The cool thing is is if you forget and you have to redeploy, you know I can deploy one of these to Amazon in like 20 seconds. So it's um, it's not the end of the world if if you uh, forget. <laughs> True, but you typically aren't going to redeploy. You're probably going to have to remake the unikernel because you forgot something or something new cropped up. You need to keep okay. So you have to have, I mean, I think there that when we talked earlier about the CICD pipelines, it's very advantageous to have something, a pipeline you just can tweak a little bit configuration-wise to build a new thing and push it out there again. So you uh, you, you brought up something really interesting we didn't, we didn't talk about. Um, every single time you hit the de deploy button, it's a brand new image okay. every single time. If I hit that deploy button 50 times a day, you get a brand new AMI 50 times a day. 
Um, so that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's something that's basically hard coded in. There's, there's little things that you can do. I, I talked about remounting volumes. Um, there's little tricks like that, that you can do, but I don't, yeah, it's every single time you hit that deploy button, you get a new image. So, and so, so um, but, but again, these, these deploys are pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. so there's no canonical MySQL unikernel that I can just grab from an internet site and deploy for myself. Well, so so yes and no. Um, <laughs> it always depends, right? <laughs> uh, we we we, uh, we we do provide like say a MySQL package. However, you don't just take the MySQL binary and run it. You have to stick a password on it. You have to you know maybe lock down the the configuration firewall issues. Um, you have to figure out um, how big of a volume should I attach? Is this like, do I even care about attaching an external volume because it's low traffic? Or should I attach like a hundred gig disk to it? So there's all the exact same steps that you would do normally on Linux still are there, except they're done differently. Um, you, you know, same thing with Redis. Like we have a Redis package, it runs really freaking fast. Um, but again, uh, do you expose it to the world? Do you not expose it to the world? Um, do you have to, you know, set it up in a cluster? Uh, again, the same sort of deployment and configuration questions that always exist yep. um, are still still present. So, all right. So, one of the things that I can imagine may be uh, a concern for people that are, are thinking about this so far would be. Okay, great. So you've got your you've got your unikernel. It just runs your application. It's hyper secure, super fast. But how do you like? How do you then observe what's going on? Like mm -hmm. how how would you get you know logs out of these things or metrics out of these things or alerts out of these things? Because most of those things would typically be like processes that would be running you know alongside or agents or things like that. So how does how does that work? Sure, um, good question. It comes up quite a bit. Basically, um, a lot of the existing tooling just works out of the box. So Prometheus, Datadog, New Relic, all that stuff just works out of the box. Um, one of the big changes is that a lot of people might be used to kind of external agents because again, they're assuming some sort of um, Linux environment, um, and it's it's a little bit of a head change. They have to. Kind of think differently about it. so you have to start thinking a, a lot of these things are going to be more app centric um mm. so uh you, you know in terms of like logs and so forth i, I mentioned syslog you know just kind of works out of the box you can either orchestrate it in that or you can rely on these things that we call talibs which to, to where you don't have to do any code can uh code changes inside your app and you can just apply them as as plugins so this is really leaning heavily on the uh, the library operating system idea, and and again the main difference is they're not ex external processes; they're just kind of um, plugins, if you will, for your application as you build these custom images. Um, you, you know, in terms of observability, we actually wrote like a uh, one of the products um, that we did called Radar, um, and that crashed <coughs> internal memory over time, disk over time. Uh, does like lot crashing, both you know kernel and user crashing, um, uh, lots of different things. Uh, it, you know, there was a famous article so many years ago written um, called "Unikernels Are Completely Undebuggable." Um, what's What's interesting that we found is that 
they're actually even easier to debug than uh, most people would think. Uh, I'll give you an example. The database that actually backs that radar service I was just talking about, um, we stood it up to kind of eat our own dog food, you know, be like, okay, let's just throw a bunch of crap at it and watch it fail. So, like, um, and, and, and it would, you know, and that's how we would kind of figure out, you know, what, what we could do and what we couldn't. Um, and whenever it would fail, you know, we keep these, uh, what we call K logs and, and, and basically they're kind of kernel level crash dumps. And what's cool on at least Google is that you can take a running instance, clone it, and then download that disk image. Uh, to look at offline, and we can immediately attach GDB to it and jump into you know where it crashed and see see everything. I mean, literally everything. Um, and so that's very different than jumping into a Linux box that you're having a hard time SSHing into because the disk is filling up so much that that you can't SSH into it. And then when you finally get in, you're like, oh, what's opening up all these connections? And so you pull out LS off and you start trying to figure out you know what process is spawning all these different connections and there's all these different questions that come from common Linux debugging tools, uh, like I mentioned, where half the question is just kind of figuring out what is what is causing this um, uh, uh, problem. And in unikernels, you know exactly what's causing the problem. It's, it's really the question of why is it causing that problem? And so um, a, lot, a lot of this tooling um, makes it a lot easier. But yeah, we can we can get at any metric and to I guess answer that other question. Again, just like configuration, you just need to instrument it when you deploy the application. So if you you know if you have a simple little blog that doesn't get much traffic, maybe you don't really care. Um, but if you have like some high performance load balance production service and you need nine nines of uptime and blah blah blah, um, then then you should definitely be instrumenting it. Um, using some of the tooling like Prometheus or, um, you know, use one of the services or whatever, you know, if, if logs are your thing, um, you know, again, that's, it's, uh, it's, it's not a, it's not a, um, binary choice, right? It's, uh, some people don't care about logs. Again, if it's a small service, maybe you just don't care. Um, but other people like do care, you know, ship it to Elasticsearch, ship it to Splunk. Um, you know, instrument it the, the way you would normally instrument it. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, on the one hand, uh, things like APM, that's typically in the executable. I can see this working very well. Just uh, inject the library you need or whatever it is, and it'll just start sending stuff to whatever you're using. But you're mentioning mm -hmm. syslog, and typically syslog writes to a file. And then something sure. reads the file and sends it to the monitoring tool. Now, the something that reads the file to send it to the monitoring tool, that would either be a separate unikernel or a old style uh, server environment then and actually the question i'm trying to pose here is more like when i make the choice to go for unikernels is it an all or nothing everything becomes unikernel or is it more of a pick your battles kind of thing where certain things are good candidates for unikernel you plant them there but it's living in an ecosystem that's broader than just e than unikernels it also has some regular servers in there to do the nitty-gritty work let's say yeah i i guess uh so, so again, two questions on, on the <laughs> yeah, syslog front. Uh, yeah, yeah, no worries. Um, on the syslog front, um, there's there's a couple different ways you can kind of orchestrate that. Uh, one is is the in-app choice where you can be like, hey, my syslog server is listening on UDP port, blah blah blah. 
Um, and so you just ship it across. However, some people don't like to do that because then they have to go tell all their app developers, hey, you have to put in this three-line chunk of code to ship all, all your logs. And so what they do is they might rely on like one of these Calibs that I mentioned, which is kind of just like a little plugin um, that you can you can plug into any um, unikernel into your application and, and it'll provides this log functionality. Another one that uh, is similar to that is an NTP service, for instance. Um, some people, especially on a lot of the distributed uh, systems, so you know, if you have something that uses Raft or um, you know something like that, timekeeping becomes incredibly important. Not to have time drift, which will happen on a cloud, um, and so you definitely want that. Same sort of concept is at play there. Uh, you know, in terms of the all or nothing approach, I would just say, you know, if, if people are interested in playing around with it. Um, try the most basic hello world you can just to get an idea of what these things are. Because we can talk about this all day, right? But at the end of the day, until you actually deploy one of these things, yeah. you really have no clue what's going on with them. <laughs> because again, people keep thinking they're like, oh, it's a, it's a Linux VM, but there's some sort of orchestration thing. And that's just not what's going on. It's, and, and it won't really become clear until you actually try to deploy one. And, and then when you you know you do the instance create, and all of a sudden you have this web server listening, and you're like, okay, well that's different. Um, you know, you, you start to understand what these really are. I mean, some people see them, and it, it's it's almost like a platform as a service, but there is no service because you're relying on the cloud, or it's, it's kind of like a serverless because you know there's no SSH, there's nothing that you can jump into, and so there's that sort of vibe with it. But at the same time, it's completely under your control. Um, you know, you can, I can, I can deploy the same unikernel to Amazon as to Google, and all it takes is, you know, a, a config switch to uh, to point it to the different cloud. Um, but it's uh, it's 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 that interchangeable. I've I've been at companies before where people have tried to migrate from like Amazon to Google, you know, and it's like multi-month-long process or something, right? So it's uh, that's not really the case here, um, you know, d depending on how tied you are into each each service. Okay. But I would also say that's that's probably like, you know, in terms of effort, if somebody, if somebody was all in on Kubernetes or all in on normal Ubuntu, whatever, um, and they wanted just completely migrate to unikernels. I would say that's maybe probably the same sort of work effort that it would be to go from like one cloud to another cloud. Um, maybe more, maybe less, I, I, I don't know. But generally speaking, just start with one hello world, deploy it, understand what it is you're actually doing and and then kind of start to, to roll things off. Because there's a little bit of a mindset change you have to do, just like people have very, from, very to much cloud, so. from cloud to container, from cloud to VM. This is also a slightly different way of thinking about things. I, th I think that's the largest challenge that most people run into is it, it's such a, it's so different. And I mean, again, Linux is like 30 years old. So, I mean, if, if, if you're my age, like 30 years, you know, we've been doing the same thing. So this is very, very different. So, like, let's say someone's been uh, been uh, hopefully someone's still listening to the end of this, and uh, they sort of their uh, their interest has been piqued. Like, how do they decide? 
Like, what's I guess what's the break-even point where, like, the change of mindset, the the having to convince other people that this is a good thing, the different tooling, like all of those things. How do how should people decide whether unikernels are like important enough for them to make these kind of changes? What's the sort of guiding lights that that people should kind of rely on to help them make that decision? Well, so, I mean, I'll, I'll mention that there's lots of different reasons why people are using these, um, like, like many, many different reasons. Uh, outside of our company, you can talk about the different types of unicurls, which we haven't really even talked too much about, but there's like over 10 different unicurls out there. Some are focused on serverless, some are focused on performance, so like NFB, SDN, uh, things in, you know, fast networking space. Uh, some are focused on IoT. Some things are focused on security. I mean, it's all over. It's all over the board. Um, and so that's like one way to look at it. It's just like um, use case specific. But then you know, internally within the company, I'll I'll talk about like why some people have have started using this and security, performance, and um, uh, ease of use are some of the three top things that kind of drive people here. Um, ease of use, again, if you're coming from like a Kubernetes world, there's so much um, complexity that just is not present uh, in these environments, uh, simply because they don't allow you to be complex. Um, so it's it's very, very easy to deploy, very easy to get running and get started with. Um, and uh, so that's, you know, a lot of people, what I didn't know, so, so I've, I've lived in, um, the San Francisco Bay Area for north of a decade now. And when I came here, I, I first thought that like everybody was, um, you know, really comfortable with Linux and just really was like all in and so forth. And I was very surprised to find the opposite. There's a wide, very wide swath of engineers out there that don't want anything at all to do with servers. Um, and uh, so, you know, back when Heroku happened in 2008, I was like, who would use this? You know, like, who, who doesn't want to have a shell and, you know, uh, have full control over their servers? And, and then we saw Cloud Foundry and we saw all these other platform offerings. And then, you know, the Docker and Kubernetes was kind of a continuation of that. And it, it surprised me for the longest time, but the reality is, is the vast, vast majority of developers out there do not want to touch servers at all. And um, Unikernels kind of embrace that a little bit uh, to, to that degree. They, they kind of gives you, give you that hands-off approach, um, but also kind of full control at the same time. Uh, so ease of use is a huge driver, which I, I was just not even aware of. Mm. Um, security was, again, the thing that brought me to the space, um, just because I've, I've been in the security world forever. And so, you know, like, like half of our cap table are cybersecurity people, um, I, I immediately saw the uh, the kind of potential there. We didn't even talk about like like the uh, the different regulations and so forth, but if you work in like say credit card processing or you work in defense or you work in, you know, healthcare or any of these industries that are highly regulated and you have these little security checklists, do you rotate passwords? Do you audit every time somebody does RMRF? Do you, you know, do all these different things? Those checklists just don't exist in <laughs> Unicurl land. So much of that goes 
goes completely away. And for that reason alone, we've had people start using uh, unikernels. And then performance is kind of the, the final driver. Um, you know, if I have one tiny little web server that's pushing, you know, 200x more requests per second, that's great. However, if I'm a ad tech company and, you know, performance is just, I want sub millisecond processing on this and I, I spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on a compute every month, um, that really starts to add up. Performance directly translates into cost. Um, so uh, that's that's kind of that third rung there. Yeah. All right. So I, hopefully people have got a, a good idea of what uh, unikernels are at this point and, you know, why they should use them and why they might be interested in, in learning more. But I guess, you know, nano VMs is, a, is certainly at least one place to go and, and learn more about them. So do you want to kind of round things off by telling us a little bit about nano VMs? Uh, yeah, I mean, we're, we're just the, uh, the company behind, um, you know, both Ops and uh, Nanos, which are the two uh, open source projects that we work on. So Ops is, you, you can call it an orchestration tool. I, I don't know if I would call it that, but that this basically lets you build and deploy them. Um, mm -hmm. It's open source, Apache 2. Uh, and then Nanos is the actual kernel implementation. Um, and so this is, to my knowledge, the most widely deployed uh, Unikernel today. Um, definitely the, you know, in terms of performance and um, uh, production use that I, again, that I'm aware of. Um, and uh, this, one thing about Nanos versus some of the others is we fall into the POSIX uh, compatible camp. And so there's like two different Unikernel um, sets out there. One are more on what you might consider the purest realm. So that's like Mirage and HalVM and things of that nature nature, ones that only support a single language, mainly because they're getting rid of the kernel user boundary. Um, then you have the POSIX compatible ones. That's like OSB, Rump Run, Nanos. Um, we're definitely very much in that camp because, you know, frankly for us, for these things to kind of really catch on, you have to support like pretty much most of the software out there um, without patching. So. All right. Awesome but uh, yeah, Nanos, Nanos OpCity, um, you know, I would just encourage people if they're at all interested, go to Ops, download it, and just you know try a Hello World just to understand what these things are, and it'll answer so many questions. <laughs> I'll definitely put links in the show notes. No problem. Indeed, indeed. All right. Well, really appreciate it, Ian. It's been uh, great uh, talking to you. Great opening our eyes to uh, certainly at least my eyes to the the world of unikernels. Like some of it, I think was was what I expected. Some of it was, was a bit different. So I really appreciate you taking the time to, to spend with us and our audience. For sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. And that is the end of the interview we had with Ian. Thank you very much, Ian, for joining us for two episodes and uh, lifting the veil on everything that is unikernel, nanokernels, and all that fun stuff. I'm kind of interested to hear from our listeners if this is something they've been using already or if maybe because of this it becomes something we're going to look at. For us, uh, as we said at the beginning of the first episode, it was totally a new concept, at least for me, I think it's uh, talk yeah. to you as well. Yeah. But it's definitely an interesting movement or whatever you want to call it. So yeah, we'd be interested to hear from our listeners if this is something that they also look at now. Indeed. 
And with that, unless if you have anything else to add. Nope, nothing else from me. Then that is all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast. You can become Patreon. Every contribution helps. We are on YouTube. You can like, subscribe, hit notification bells, make Dave a happy boy. And yeah, just listen to uh, watch a couple of videos there and make me happy too, because I do all of the editing jobs and that's also a lot of work. You can go to www.roaringelf.org. There's links there to the Patreon page, the YouTube page, and a lot of information about the podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter from time to time using the ad Roaring Elephant tag. And you can still send email, plain old email, to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time, my name is... Um, and well, I don't know. I don't want to be unified. I don't like the word, but I'm still young. <laughs> My name is Unicorn Enlightened, Dave. <laughs> Ooh, and we look forward to more enlightening talking to everybody again next week. It's going to be great. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> One can hope. <laughs> See you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.